Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We've all experienced a disproportionate amount of grief and loss over the past decade or so, and it's not unreasonable for anyone to be wondering how we endure it, how we process, and how we move on. Writer and poet Natasha T. Miller has given a lot of thought to the ways we manage all this grief and loss, and she joins today to share what she's learned. This is all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Look around and consider the last decade or so of American life. We've been witness to multiple recessions, the rise of an authoritarian-leaning president and his followers, Video captured death and violence against African Americans, which led to millions taking to the streets. And of course, the global pandemic that kept many of us from each other and in our homes for two years. All of this has meant that we have experienced a lot of loss and a lot of death, a lot of grief. One million Americans alone have now died from COVID-19. We're all missing lots of people, people who were critical to our lives, people who offered us laughter and joy and maybe even frustration or anger that we, now that we don't have it, actually miss. That loss that we're being felt now has left so many of us grieving really deeply and looking for ways to navigate loss, to honor those that aren't here, and to seek safety in a world that seems increasingly unstable. And that leaves a lot of questions for a lot of us. What are we supposed to do now? How do we carry on? How do we rebuild? if that's even a thing. Natasha T. Miller is a poet who has a lot of experience navigating grief. She writes about her mother, who struggles with alcoholism, her brother and friend who have died, and various black and brown people who are targeted and killed pretty much just for existing. She's been exploring what it feels like to not want to feel at all and then to come out of that, to find a brighter space. Her new book is called Butcher, a really interesting collection of work that challenges us, I think, to really reframe the way we process grief and loss and figure out how to carry on with our lives in a way that doesn't have us constantly pining for or obsessing over the losses that we sustain. Natasha T. Miller, I'm really pleased to welcome you to Detroit today. Thank you, Hannah. I am very excited uh, to be here. Yeah. So you are writing a lot about grief and loss and death in this book in connection with cooking, in connection with the kitchen and with food. I absolutely love that vehicle um, to, to deal with these things. But, but tell me what in your mind is the connection between these things, loss and grief and death and food. Why did you create a narrative 
out of these concepts? Yeah, um, I think it's it's one of those things, honestly, that found me. And and I, my my therapist, she said she, she says uh, the thing that you are searching for is also searching for you. And I've carried that with me for uh, for a very long time. When it came to cooking, uh, my my family they used to tease me growing up. They, my cousins would say she can't boil water, and I I went away to the military. And uh, I found a career in, in cooking. And I came back home, and then I stopped cooking. I realized I could do this thing, and I stopped. And then in 2013, I lost my brother. And then, and then grief hit me. And I had no idea, you know, what it was that I could do to navigate the grief that I was experiencing. And um, how I dealt with it is I started to get in the, in the kitchen, and I just started to, to cook. My my love language became cooking, cooking for other people. But also, it was the thing that made me feel better as I was dealing with the grief of my brother. And I looked up years later and realized that cooking had got me through so much of what I was dealing with. And I realized I had been writing poems for six or seven years that all had the common thread, which was loss, grief, and somehow related to, to being in the kitchen. And um, I, I think it's just, you know, like I said, it, it just kind of found me. Mm-hmm. So would you say it's fair to say that one way maybe these things are connected is that grief itself cuts a little like a knife that, mm-hmm. you know, it's really sharp and gets to our bones and can get to our bones in a way that uh, other things can't. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and The Answer is Kindness, which is one of the first poems in my book. And I say, um, my mother, she's the sharpest knife in any kitchen. And and that does kind of take me into a space where I think about how we all can be cut deeply and how we all can cut deeply. And I also think about my brother, and I say uh, he was slaughtered. He was left on the sidewalk to cook. He was, in the eyes of so many people, an animal that didn't really mean much until they had to feed off of him. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of how um, how we'll look at, at, at bodies, especially black bodies in, in the world and, in, and through the lens in his book. Mm. So the book is divided into five parts, and they are parts of the body that uh, that have to do with cooking, parts of the animal body, the, the rib, tongue and cheek, the round, the tenderloin, and the brisket. Uh, talk about how that shape came into to focus for you. What is it about those parts that, that make sense in this narrative? Yeah. Uh, one thing I always like to do is uh, I would say give credit where, where credit is due. And I, and I cannot say that this is something that I was able to conceptualize on my own. Uh, it, this, this was a three or four part project. So as I was thinking about Butcher, one thing that, that I do all the time is um, I watch Food Network religiously. If you come to my home, it's Chopped Kitchen, and it's a poem called Chopped in, in, in the book. Um, and I remember calling a friend of mine, Taylor Aldridge, who, who works out in uh, L.A. now, but was a curator here in Detroit. And we were thinking of ways to bring cooking into Butcher, and we thought maybe I could put some recipes in it, maybe my brother's favorite foods. And then it went from that, and I called my mentor, uh, who is Mahogany L. Brown out in, in New York, who has a lot of books, New York Times bestseller, you know, I love her. And I, and I, I went from recipes to her saying, okay, well, what would this book look like? if you dissected a cow. And I took that concept and I went to a friend of mine, Antoine Scott, who was an old colleague of mine. And I said, okay, I'm gonna break this book down into five different sections of the cow, but let's be very strategic about what each section means. So when you talk about the brisket, I say, well, I think that's like uh, my favorite part of the cow. So that's my brother. When you talk about the tenderloin, I think about, okay, well, I had to raise my nephew after my brother was was murdered, so let him be the tenderloin. When you think about the rib, I said, oh, okay, you know what? We couldn't exist without that, so so that's my mom. And then when I thought about the round, I'm like, oh, well, that's the worst part of the cow, so 
that's that's probably America. And then I had the, you know, the tongue in cheek, which I thought was a play on like my identity in the world and my sexuality and, and my gender. So we were very, very strategic about what each part of the cow meant, uh, meant to me and, uh, and my relationship to grief, but also my relationship to other people. Mm-hmm. So I, I do want to get to some of the content of the book, which I just think is uh, really powerful. Uh, but before we do that, I, I, I want to give our listeners a sense of, I guess, the scope of the grief that you're dealing with. You, you've already referenced a couple times your mother um, and your brother, and there are really different kinds of grief that you're that you're dealing with in both of those spaces. But of course, they also connect in in really important ways. So. Let's start with telling the listeners about what what grief means in the context of your mother. In the context of, of my mother, I think the thing that I'm dealing with that, that I've been processing lately uh, is, I would say, anticipatory grief. My mother, like so many people in in the world, and I keep saying so many you know, black and, 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 and brown people, we have had to deal with looking at people in our lives that we care about and that we love and understanding that there's a thing that is plaguing you. And one day you will probably not be here with me. And I have to accept that early on. And I also try to do that same thing for my brother, which is very unfair to any person in the world to look at a person that you love and say, this thing will be the death of you. Mm. And I think since I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, and um, I realized what, you know, going from, oh, there's this person that drinks, there's this person that has fun and get drunk, to, oh, alcoholism is a real thing. And now I'm becoming an adult or a young adult and understanding that. And this is a thing that also kills people. And now I'm becoming a daughter in the world and understanding that one day, again, this person might not be with me and to to look at somebody to look at the world and think there's almost nothing i could do about it there's a lot of things i want to do about it but there's really in the end nothing it's out of my control and we also very helpless uh when we're not in control of, of things and i think that has been the journey with 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 my mother and and her struggles and i and i say in the book it's not the thing that defines her I think that I know she is the most amazing person I've ever met in my whole entire life. But I also know at the same time that um, there is something that has always been a barrier between her and I. And now on the other side of that barrier, it is, to me, a loss that I'm already experiencing without having uh, experience. And let's go back to that time in your life when you were discovering or starting to understand what your mother's struggles looked like. That's a really critical time in emotional development. It's a critical time in brain development. And when you experience something at that age, it really shapes things like trust. It shapes things like connection, human connection, the the, the connections that you're able to make and and whether those connections make any sense to you or or to others, um, I, I sense that you have given a lot of thought to that, and and how much that affected you because of the age at which you kind of became aware of what the relationship with your mother was like, and again that it wasn't entirely defined by her challenges, but that it was a central. It was a central theme in her life, and and therefore in yours. Yeah, you know, uh, you know. Again, when I was younger, I, I thought this was just a thing that people did. Um, as I grew older, it did shape our relationship, and it also shaped the relationship that I have with myself uh, because I started to, at some point, mimic the behavior, which I thought was okay, you know, for a short period of time until I realized oh, no, I I don't want to be like my mother. But at the same time, the conflict is 
I do want to be like my mother. My mother is the kindest person I've ever met, and I mimic that behavior. I want to be the kindest person that anybody else ever meets. But then this other side is my mother is an alcoholic, and I don't want to be that person. So thinking that you want to be like somebody, and you also don't want to be like somebody, and you love a part of somebody, and you hate that part, the other part of somebody at the same time as, as you're a young adult is a very conflicting thing, which was, again, such a, a large barrier in the relationship between uh, my mom and I, because I felt like I love you fully, and I also don't, because I don't know how, and I don't know who you are, and I don't know what person I'm going to get on 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 which day of the week. But I know at the core, you are a kind human being. But I'm I'm a young adult, or even now, I, I don't know how to love this other side of you, and that hurts. And that's something that stays with me, that will be with me while my mother is here, when my mother is gone. When I am gone, I imagine that if there is some space where I can still wake up and, and have some recollection of that relationship, it will still be very complicated because I will still think if you weren't conflicted with this thing, even though I am very proud of the person I am today, who would I have been? I'm talking with Natasha T. Miller, who is a performance poet, an LGBTQ activist, film producer, and Kresge Artist Fellow. Her recent book of poetry is called Butcher, uh, and she and I are talking about navigating grief with art, how art, how literature, how poetry helps us make sense of the things that happen uh, to us that uh, we'd rather not have happened to us. And we're talking about how many of those things so many of us have faced in the last decade or so. Uh, we want to hear from you about how you navigate grief and whether you use art or literature or poetry to try to understand the grief or the loss that you're experiencing. How do you give yourself space to breathe? How do you give yourself space to process? All of these things. Also give us a call and tell us how has the pandemic changed your relationship to mourning or grieving others? I know for so many of us, the pandemic took so many people who we weren't expecting to lose at the time that we did. How do you make sense of that? And how do you move forward? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Natasha, before we go to listeners, I want to give you a chance to talk about your brother, um, who you've also mentioned a, a few times already. Different set of circumstances there but similar kinds of emotions, I guess, and, and responses from you. And again, I think it's, it's shaping your life in a, a really important way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my brother, which I, I, for so long, I would only say my brother after, after the loss of him. And I tell people, I think that a large part of that is because once I started to say his name, I started to actually realize that there is a real person in my life that I lost. My brother, his name was Marcus, and um, he was murdered in Detroit in, in 2013. And I remember being at the home with uh, his, his son, my nephew, Carlito, and we were watching Beast of the Southern Wild. I still remember it, you know, like it was yesterday. And the part where, where uh, she hits her dad in the chest and he, he passes out, my phone starts to ring. And it's my aunt. And we talk about how if your aunt calls you too late, it means somebody in the family has died. And they told me that uh, my brother was, 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 was killed. And uh, he was killed on Six Mile. He was shot 15 times. And it was such a traumatic time. Uh, my brother was killed three days after Christmas. He was killed uh, a few days before my birthday. He was cremated on my birthday. His funeral was the day after my birthday, and uh, his birthday was a few days later. My brother was, uh, I would say, my best friend. I would always 
you know, talk about how you have different soulmates in life. We were a year and 11 days apart. But growing up, when you think about what my mom was dealing with and us not having our father there, uh, he was my brother. He was also my father. He was also my protector. He was also my best friend. Um, he was the person that was was just like me uh, in the world in, 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 in different ways and also very, uh, very similar. And And losing him. I think was the first time, even though I had lost other people, that I had experienced grief, which I, I didn't know what it was. I thought there was a part of me that was sad, a part of me that couldn't get over the death of him. But I think I was still fairly new to this concept, this idea of like, oh, this is a grief that will be with you for the rest of your life. This is a feeling that you will always have have to, to navigate. And the death of my brother brought me to to where I am uh, today. Oddly enough, there's been a lot of successes in my life, but those successes have been creating community for other people who are dealing with grief, which I would not have done if I had never experienced the loss of my brother. So you have this one part of you that is wishing and hoping this should have never happened to you and you hope it never happens to anybody else. Then you have this other part of you that says if you wouldn't have never experienced a loss so greatly, you would not be who you are in the world today. And again, it comes back to, to conflict. You know, would I be as empathetic as I am without this loss? Would I be as generous and kind to other people without this loss? Would I be able to help so many other people through grief? if my brother would not have have passed away. And if I could go back in time, of course, I would, you know, hopefully reverse it and, and, and wish that Marcus was still here. But now as an adult, as somebody who has been dealing with this for seven or eight years later, now I'm starting to see the, the other side, which is, but there's so many other people in the world that needs to hear this story that needs help navigating what they're going through that need you to tell this story so that they can just be here. And I think that is not just what Marcus did for me, but for so many other people that, you know, he'll never know that in some way he gave to a community of people who wouldn't exist without the thing that happened to him. And I, you know, I think this next question is, one of the more difficult ones to ever ask when you're talking to someone who's experienced this kind of loss. But, but have you spent much time thinking about why your brother was killed? And, and I say that because so many of us in the city experience that loss of, of violence, of seemingly senseless violence. And I think there's a real impetus to to try to make sense of it by trying to explain it in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and often that's not possible because, you know, violence is, is not a rational act. Um, but I wonder if you've made any progress with that. Have you found any kind of solace in trying to explain it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, there, there's another poem in the book that my editor cut down to like three lines and it says, um, you Marcus, you martyr, even if you died for yourself. In the beginning, you know, I, I used to think, okay, well, my brother lives a life where ultimately death will find him. As I, as I grew and navigated this relationship uh, to grief and death, I understand that we all live a life where death will ultimately find us. But what my brother did was be a black man in America, be a black man in Detroit, be a black man with mental health issues that were not navigated or or uh, or approached properly. But he also wanted to take care of his family. He also wanted to live a life where his sister was taken care of, his mother was taken care of, his son was taken care of. And as a black man living in Detroit who has navigated these mental health issues, who has, has been in and out of the juvenile system, who has been in and out of jail and prison, what were the opportunities that were left for him? 
other than being on the streets. And it sounds easy when you're on the other side and you say, well, there's so many things that he could have done, maybe. But there's also so many things that he couldn't do just because of the way the world is set up, the way that the country is, is set up. So do I think that my brother was, and I'll, I say to people, again, so complicated, the best person, and he was the best person to me. He wasn't the best person in the world. He was the best person to his mom. He was the best person to his son. So, you know, seven, eight years ago, after his passing, I was made to feel like, oh, well, you shouldn't feel grief. You know, because I say that they, they say that the drug dealers stood on the tracks their whole lives, challenging the train, knew uh, death would come even if the weather delayed it. Seventy years ago, it's like, oh, well, this was this was going to happen. Yeah. And then years later, I feel like, but maybe it didn't have to happen. Because what would what would life look like if his father was in his life and in our life? And what would life look like if he had a second and, and third chance? And what would life look like if he didn't feel like he had to be the provider, he had to be the protector? He could just grow up and just be a human that exists in a world without all of these other obligations and complications. So, yeah, I've been, I've been processing that um, a lot in these last few years. But the one thing I know is that uh, everybody's son, black man, uh, there's somebody somebody coming up we are going to continue this really wonderful conversation with natasha t miller we're going to get her to read a little from her book butcher and we want to get to you on the phones and on social media give us a call let us know how you are processing all the grief and loss that we have experienced collectively over the last decade or so. Let us know whether art or literature or poetry, some form of creativity is part of your recipe for trying to process all of these things, trying to move on. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, the comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Natasha T. Miller, performance poet, uh, whose recent book of poetry is called Butcher. Uh, it is uh, about navigating grief through the idea of cooking, the kitchen, and food, something that I think lots of us leverage in order to process grief. Uh, we're talking about how all of us and collectively have experienced so much loss and grief over the past many years and the ways that we figure out how to keep going, how to keep going forward, um, even though we know there's a lot more loss ahead, perhaps. Um, we want to hear from you about how you navigate grief and the things that you try to leverage to help navigate that grief. Uh do you do you use art? Do you use literature? Do you use poetry as vehicles for understanding the things that happen to you? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there. Um, Natasha, I want to have you read a little from... Uh, from Butcher, uh, the poem, I Learned Grief Too Late. Um, can we start there? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I always uh, like to give a, a short backstory on I Learned of Grief Too Late. Again, as you heard um, earlier, it, it's this thing that I just could not understand that was happening to me. And uh, when 
I was navigating the grief of, of my brother is, is, the, is the world stopped for me. And I did not understand that the world did not stop for other people or there were other things that other people were experiencing where the world did stop for them. And I just, I centered myself and I forgot that everybody else were, you know, they were dealing with things too. Uh, and I, I had to write this poem after I realized how my behavior affected other people uh, who were who were dealing with things as well. And this is this is the last poem in Butcher. It's called um, "I Learned of Grief Too Late." And it's I learned that grief will humble you. That there's not enough success in the world to make you forget that your loved ones are dead. I've been crazy to all of my friends since my brother died. There's a girl in Detroit that I hadn't talked to in three years prior to the night that he was murdered. And she still showed up to the crime scene before his body was removed from the concrete. She drank her liver into the darkest of holes and listened to the song, Drunk in Love With Me for like 56 days straight. And the first time I felt well enough to go outside sober and sleep in the dark alone again, I stopped answering her phone calls. If you're reading this, if you're hearing this, I'm sorry. Even though there's a really good excuse, I know sometimes we become the hunted and the hunter, the monster that we are running from and the monster that we are becoming. I know that your phone has been ringing nonstop since your overdose, since your mother passed, since your relapse, since your lover left at the very moment it happened and you've been hitting the ignore button, telling yourself that nobody cares about you. And I get it. Grief. It's so much more contagious than joy. It seems easier to hand our baggage to the people we love than move through the world freely. It's the reason I left my mother at home to mourn the death of her only son alone while I went on the road to perform poems for strangers. Because hurt people, hurt people is so damn cliche but true. So you blame anything on the dead. You become the excuse and the excuse of the burning building and the fire expecting to be rescued while left alone until you are left alone, until you can no longer blame your behavior on your pain, until you have to be good to your friends again and you send apologies years too late until you hear someone you love say they can't forgive you for the first time and you feel success and emptiness in the same body until you are humbled, until you realize that you are not the only one. We are all hurting and as a result, we are hurting each other until you learn to be grieving and gracious until you learn that this was never just about you. Mm. Wow. I want to go to the phones and uh, get our listeners involved in the conversation here. Sabrina in Detroit, you're up first. What's on your mind? Good morning. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to um, make a comment. Um, I love T. Miller. Um, I am an artist and a crusty artist, if you will. <laughs> so I, I've been living with a constant state of gratitude, grace, and grief. Um, and, and how I process it, um, my father died of COVID in 2020. Um, my mother died when I was 12 years old in 1979. So I just know that grief will be with me forever. And it comes in the form of waves like water. Um, mindfulness teaches me how to kind of float with it, if you will, until it's gone and then move forward. Um, but that's how I move through grief, just knowing that it's going to be there. And it's almost like um, it's just a part of my life now. It just doesn't go anywhere. But I, I need to know that you have to keep moving through it or mm. let it do what it does. And art definitely helps with that process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, hello, Sabrina. <laughs> I'm glad you called. <laughs> it's good to hear your voice as well. Um, uh, Natasha, react to what Sabrina is saying. Uh, well, I think the first thing I have to say is, is thank you to Sabrina. I, I love Sabrina. Yeah. Um, I, I was uh, well, still in the process of making a documentary about raising uh, my nephew after my brother was murdered, and uh, my nephew's mom went to prison for uh, five years shortly after. And uh, 
Sabrina was one of the first people in, in Detroit to to give me advice that stuck stuck to me, who was featured in the documentary, um, and who taught me that what Sabrina just said, grief will be with you forever. It never leaves you. And that's okay. That is okay. And then we find these different ways, you know, to navigate it. You know, uh, thankfully, people like Sabrina and uh, her son, they're some of the best you know, artists of our times. Yes. And um, I, I think that in, in my realm of, of poetry, I try to see what they see, you know, in their paintings and their art, which is this thing that has happened to you. It can define you, but it doesn't have to define you in a way where you always feel sad, where you always feel down, where you all grief does not mean sadness. And I think that is uh, uh, a thing that I have, have learned from Sabrina. So I am grateful to have you in our community and, and, and grateful that you called in. Yeah, yeah, and and we should say for other listeners, that's uh, Sabrina Nelson, uh, a really wonderful and accomplished artist in our community, and her son, who you referenced, is Mario Moore, who is uh, now an internationally acclaimed <laughs> artist whose career I think is just absolutely exploding, and and whose whose work just makes me uh, think and feel. Uh, quite profoundly uh, every time I see it. Uh, it's, it's such a wonderful thing that we have these kind of fixtures in, in our community. I, I wonder if you can talk also, Natasha, about what you draw from someone like Sabrina or Mario, who they work in a different medium than, than you do or than, than I do, right? They, they are visual artists, um, but, but you're an artist too. And there's a connection between those two things, but there are also, I think, some differences. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, uh, the the first difference is uh, my poetry costs uh, twelve dollars, and I remember being uh, meeting Mario Moore, who is one of the most humble artists I, you know I think I've ever met, and I. Went to a gallery, whatever, and I said, "Oh, this is your painting. This yeah. is nice. I want to buy it." He said, "Yeah, it's only twenty five thousand dollars." I said, "Oh, okay." So You're gonna I, need I a went, loan to buy this. <laughs> if I win three Cresties, I can afford this. Um, so I think that's one difference. But you know, the, the the second is people like Sabrina and and Mario, and as I referenced, you know, Taylor Aldrich earlier, who is you know just put a show on with Mario in L.A. Um, they see things that that, that I can't see, but when when I look at them and and they are explained to me, uh, it, it looks like what what poetry looks like. Their art looks like poetry to me, and their art looks like healing to me. And although it's through a different vehicle and and a different lens, I have learned to open myself up to seeing and and saying, okay, well, poetry is 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 one thing, but how do you look at these other mediums in art and and understand how you can you know heal a, a community and how you can bring community uh, t- together. I-, I can never pretend to do what, you know, somebody like Sabrina and, and Mario does. But I also find um, so much joy in-, in the fact that somebody like Sabrina can say, oh, but, but this poem is-, is something that maybe I can't write, mm-hmm. but it is something that has healed me or has healed a community or can contribute to the healing or the gathering of the community. And I can say this, this, this painting is something that I could probably, you know, never draw or conceptualize, but I see how it contributes to bringing people together to, to healing people together. So there are a lot of differences, but I think the thing that um, is similar is that we're all kind of drawing from something that is very real to us, which is um, our own experiences, mm-hmm. and especially as Black artists, we're all drawing from drawing from that 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 same lens. Yeah. Okay, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation with Natasha T. Miller. We'll also continue with you on the phones and on social media. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us how you handle grief and loss and whether art of any kind is part of that process. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter for comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest this hour is Natasha T. Miller, performance poet, LGBTQ activist, film producer, and Kresge Artist Fellow. Her recent book is a book of poetry called Butcher. Uh, we're talking about uh, the way we process grief, uh, the, the tools we use uh, around us, art, literature, poetry, uh, that help us make sense of all the grief that we experience. Uh, we want to hear from you about what you're doing to get through what I think are pretty extraordinary times uh, for us uh, in this country and uh, on the planet. Um, do you use art? Do you use uh, poetry and literature or even visual art as a way of managing all of this grief and loss. Uh, call and talk to us about it. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, to Facebook and Twitter, and put comments there. Before we get back to the phones, uh, Natasha, I want to have you read one more poem that I, that I have been waiting uh, all week, really, to have you read. Um, the, the poem Correction. And... Um, uh, first, I'm sure you're going to explain what it's about and, and what inspired you to write it, but I, I just think it's uh, one of the most powerful pieces in the book. Oh, thank you. Um, which is interesting. Sometimes you just you, you, you have these thoughts, and uh, you write them down, and, and, and sometimes they become poetry. And I think uh, Correction was one of those poems that it, it, was, it was not intended to, to be a poem, and it, I wrote it, um, I think, around the time that uh, George Floyd was, was, was murdered. Mm -hmm. And I thought about how, with social media and the way the world is moving now, everybody talks about how, um, how oh, like, everything is so bad now. Everything is happening now. And I thought, no, 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 no. Um, this has been happening in the world. America has been on fire. And for you, Stephen, I'm actually going to read the extended version mm -hmm. of of correction. And it's because people always ask me um, why I write about so many fires uh, in my poem. So mm -hmm. in the book, it goes, correction, America is on fire. Correction, America is burning again. Correction, America has always been on fire. We're just paying closer attention to the flames. They ask me, I write about fire so much, and I say because these poems are supposed to be burning things down. America is a bank that needs to be robbed from the inside, a family that should be broken up by its own children. All your business aired out on the dinner table. You killed my sister in her sleep past the bread. You killed my brother in his car with his daughter in the back seat past the greens. You rolled my cousin up in a gym mat and sent him back to his mother with no insides inside and told us, we crazy. Black people, so magic, they can wrap themselves up as a gift to the corner and make their own organs disappear past the meat. Father, past the wine. Mother, I hope this meal be cursed, this wine be poisoned. I hope your legs turn into boulders too heavy to lift. And after nine minutes and 29 seconds, you yell, I can't breathe. And you look into the kitchen and realize it's because that is where the smoke is coming from. Mm. So... so I, I'm really intrigued by that full version, of course, of, of the poem. And and I want to have you explain how you decide to truncate it so much in, in the book. In the book, it's just a few lines. And, and I thought that was, I mean, I thought that was incredibly powerful. But, of course, the extended version is even more. What What's the process there? Yeah, um, and, and, and which is interesting enough, actually, when I'm uh, done with this interview, I am going to perform at my one of my close friends. Uh, her, her grandmother passed away at funeral today. Um, and I, I had a show in East Lansing, which uh, I work at Michigan State University now, and I was uh, heading up to East Lansing to, to do a show. And I was thinking about correction. And again, I was just thinking about all of these things that have just been happening to us as as black people in, in America and how, like, how how is this nonstop? And um, I was like, oh, well, I know people have the book, but I want to give them something else. And in like one hour, uh, I wrote the poem headed to to East Lansing. It was just something I felt like was was unfinished. I felt like I feel like this is a powerful poem on its own in the book. But sometimes I I feel like business is 
is unfinished. And I wanted people to know what I meant when I talked about correction. America has always been on fire. I think that is the most important line to me because it has always been on fire and it is still on fire. And I wanted people to understand what I meant by that, that there's always things happening to us. What what happened, you know, in, in Buffalo, what happened in Minnesota, what happened in Detroit. It, it didn't happen. It's still happening. So I just felt like um, it was just unfinished business. And if the poem never makes it to a version of, of the book, uh, it, it, it exists. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go to Dr. Curtis Long, who is at the Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility. Dr. Long, uh, you've called Hi. before. Welcome back Hello. to the show. Hey. Good, good morning. Um I'm so glad I uh, sat in my car before I went up to work. <laughs> but uh, everything, I mean, uh, the poetry is excellent. And uh, as again, as I'm sitting here, it's just having me go through how my day is going to be as I engage these young people. So in terms of art, I, I would definitely say, and I think uh, listening to the show today confirms that I have developed an eclectic approach in dealing with grief and loss. And with that being said, um, uh, I am a physician. I'm a psychiatrist uh, practicing in this particular environment, and I've been practicing medicine almost 30 years. And why I chose to come to the Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility these last five years, I think I realize now. But from my perspective, what I think I'm doing is constantly defining what is treatment and not so much from the concrete treatment and medical school and residency, but a lot of uh, what Miss um, T. Miller is doing. Uh, in my office upstairs, uh, well, let me say this. We have 120 kids down in Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility. Most people think that kids are here from committing crimes. That is true, but we have a lot of kids who are here based on DHS, DPS, mm-hmm. uh neglect, abuse, uh, trafficking, et cetera. So what I try to do when kids come in my office, which is rare down here based on the position I place, I have these letters defining what grief and loss is, uh, D-A-B-D-A. And I let them take it from there. I'll bring in pencils, pads, whatnot, and let them just start writing. I also have books, poetry, et cetera. And I will be adding uh, your collection because in listening to your um, your your, po- your uh, piece of I learned grief too late. It just took me back to a young man who committed a heinous crime, and I've been dealing with him for almost five years. And to finally realize, I had to have patience for he can come full circle and acknowledge what he did was uh, horrific, and such that he can move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have young men who've taken lives for sure. We're represented with all the gangs in Detroit. And they're all really, you know, once I do their psychiatric eval, it all started with unresolved grief and loss. Mm-hmm. They may not know it, but, you know, you can see it. So how I can get them to come full circle, you know, I use any means necessary. Uh, but I will say there's tremendous kickback in using the arts for obvious reasons, because kids use pencils to harm themselves and things like that. But this yeah. morning has been very insightful. <laughs> Believe me, it's been very insightful, and uh, hopefully, when I come to the conclusion, I think what I'm trying to do is not in vain, and uh, give me, uh, I guess it's confirming uh, what I need to do, uh, even more what I need to do. Yeah, Dr. Long, I I love when you call in, and as I said, you've called in to the show before, because I think uh, that day-to-day experience you have up close with, um, with some of the neediest members of our community. It's not how people think of kids at the detention facility, but that is absolutely who they are. And uh, I think your recognition of that is is also really powerful. Uh, Natasha, I've got uh, about a minute left, really, uh, but I want to give you a chance to respond to, to Dr. Long. Uh, well, one, I want to say thank you for being another person in, in the world, especially in the city, who is doing doing what we call um, the work. I think that there's a such thing as bad people, but I also think that there's such thing as bad things that happen to people or bad things that happen to good people, and it, and it shapes their lives. So um, 
I want to say, aside from that, you know, shout out to, to Inside Out Literary Arts, mm-hmm. to people like Shaka Shangor, to, to people who are, one, showing us that I, I think about when I was working with Inside Out, I would go into high schools and people, kids wouldn't show up. And I would be so frustrated. Then I had to realize these kids are not showing up to write poems because they've lost their mothers and their fathers and their clothes aren't clean and they have nothing. And so how can I expect for them to be present, to do something, you know, like write poems? But then I think about how the work that the doctor is doing, the art that Inside Out is putting in schools, the story that people like Shaka Shangor is telling, the stories that even I'm telling myself, the ways in which if you give people a chance, if you give people another chance, especially young adults, there are ways in which they will show up. The world has affected them. The world has, especially, and I keep saying, black kids, especially black kids in, in Detroit. You know, there's so much that's against them all the time. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're going into these high schools, we're going into these juvenile detention centers, and we're seeing it as human beings, and we're doing that work together um, is important. So not just the work that I'm doing. I just want to say thank you uh, to, to the doctors for, for seeing these young adults as as very human and and people who can be healed, who can be rehabilitated, who can be people who go out to the world and and save other people. Mm. Okay, Natasha T. Miller, always really great to have conversations with you. Keep doing what you're doing and promise right now to come back and talk with us again, maybe after your next book. I have no choice. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. You don't. Uh, also, shout out to you for the work that you've done here at WDET on two podcasts, Tracked and Traced and The Science of Grief. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Uh, come back on Monday and I will see you then. We're going to talk about why people like Donald Trump, uh, why folks still cling to him and why they feel seen and recognized by him. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.